At that time, in the 70s, a lot of black ad agencies start opening up because here we go back to women's rights. Okay, women, the women's movement was big. It wasn't a surprise to see women doing unusual careers. And then everything had started opening up. So the black ad agencies and the black magazines, other than Ebony and Jet, now you had Essence and a few others. So I would take my work to see those people because I would go to the other ad agencies, but you know, they would look at me like, well, I don't know, you know, this is kind of not what we're used to. And you know, because it was, you know, they, did, they weren't used to seeing black photographers, especially not a black female. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Throughout her long and distinguished career as a commercial and fine art photographer, Barbara Dumetz has produced images that feel familiar, even if you're viewing them for the first time. Through her lens, even the most ordinary subject matter has a mythic quality. It has a story to tell that reaches far beyond the frame. That's her unique creative gift, and it's one she began cultivating as an Art Center student and ultimately deployed to great effect in editorial spreads for glossy magazines and iconic ads for global brands like Coca-Cola and Delta. Despite her vast reserves of natural talent, it was hardly a given that Barbara would achieve her lofty creative goals as a black woman making her way in the predominantly white male field of commercial photography in the 1970s and 80s. And yet, she persisted. Against steep odds, Barbara built a professional photography practice from the ground up and paved the way for a new generation of black female artists. Her personal journey is nearly as inspiring and captivating as her iconic images of such legendary trailblazers as Maya Angelou, Quincy Jones, and Thelonious Monk, the latter of whom she first met by chance as a young, aspiring photographer. You'll hear her describe her chance encounter with Monk with sheer wonder at his genius. And then with characteristic humility, she'll concede after some prodding that maybe, just maybe, her work echoes the deeply felt rhythms of her beloved jazz. I'm here to tell you that her images have a beat as cool and distinctive as the woman who made them. Please enjoy my conversation with Barbara Dumetz. So Barbara, uh, it was wonderful conducting research on you and your background and your incredible career. And there were a lot of interesting descriptors of you. Really? Uh, one is a, that you're a pioneer, that you're a trailblazer, that you're a female role model, that you're a one-woman force, <laughs> that you're tenacious. <laughs> the list goes on in, uh, in really wonderful ways. I'm just interested in how you respond to that, uh, how you uh, reflect on yourself and the kind of characteristics that have brought you through this amazing career of yours. Um, well, I think those d descriptions are pretty much true. Um, I am the only girl, I had three brothers, and I was very close to my dad. So I think that um, 
tenacity and the uh, drive maybe comes from being close to males mm. as a young person, as a young girl. I mean, I think that I'd, if I didn't have those qualities, particularly in the 60s and 70s, I wouldn't have gotten where I got, you know, in terms of having this kind of a career. Because, you know, there were not many women doing advertising and commercial photography, if at, if at all, especially black women, you know. So I think they're good descriptions. <laughs> and how conscious were you, you know, going through your career of being alone or, or really trying to blaze a trail? You know, I don't, re- I don't recall feeling isolated. And the reason why, uh, I don't know that I was paying a lot of attention to it. I was just trying to make sure that I had my career. There were a lot of black eyes, you know. There were other women in the art direction field, you know, and graphic designers, and they were all, you know, a lot of black females doing that kind of work. So I can't say that I felt alone in the sense that I think you're referring to, as far as not having role models as as black females. Let me ask the question from a different point of view. Were you actually energized that there was an opportunity here that you could take on? Oh, yeah. I loved every second of what I was doing. In a kind of unique way, because there weren't a lot of, yeah. there wasn't a lot of precedent, right? Yeah, that's true, that's true. Um, I mean, you know, it took me a minute to get a foothold into some of the mainstream clients, you know. Uh, and I, I would just do individual work. I shot a lot of headshots for the African-American actors and models of those of that day, you know. Um, that was like my little bread and butter. I had my little $75 for a headshot to go on a sheet, and they pay me $37.50 up front, and then I give them their prints, and they give me the other $37.50. <laughs> <laughs> but my rent was only $250. Well, there so, you I go. Mean, you got it. Yeah. Ba- you know, back then, that was like, cool, I-, I can do this. And I would maybe shoot that type of stuff two, three, four times a week, maybe. some. You know, So, so I would find ways to keep myself afloat um, even before I had a studio. Let's go back and just contextualize your background a little bit. So I read that your grandfather was a photographer. Yes, my grandfather was a photographer in Charleston, West Virginia. Wow. He worked at the Charleston Gazette, and he did a lot of you know family portraits, and he shot the high school yearbook, and there was a black college in Charleston called uh, West Virginia State was a black college at that time. He would shoot all their yearbook stuff, and... Um, he just made a career, and he ended up with a studio, and he did portraits, and as well as commercial work for the companies around Charleston. Did he live long enough for you to be able to build a relationship with him as a, as a child? Yeah, yeah. I um, He died when I was about 14, so yes. Oh. And, and we would go back and forth from Charleston to Detroit. I grew up in Detroit. Right. Once we left Charleston, I went to Detroit. But yeah, he would come to Detroit, and we would go to Charleston. And I was just fascinated with him. I guess that's what started it. I didn't think about it at the time. But yeah, I was pretty fascinated by him. Okay, so let's just get a sense of the arc of your career too, which I will say begins, you know, with the experience with your grandfather, but moves in. Can you just tell us a little bit about, so the listeners can have a sense of your context and your background? Right, how it happened. How, How I decided to become a photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And eventually got to Art Center, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I went to undergrad at Fisk University, which is HBCU, I was a psychology major. And um, I didn't really know what I wanted to be at that time as a freshman. My dad said, well, just major in psychology. You know, <laughs> it'll be okay. You'll figure it out, you know. So I did. And um, along the way, he sent me a little small Instamatic camera. 
I used to use that to play around with and take pictures on campus of the fraternities and sororities and got involved with the yearbook a little bit. I even shot, check this out, Thelonious Monk came to the, wow. came to Nashville. I was in Nashville at the time for a jazz concert, and I took my little camera and I photographed him. I just shot a little quick shot of him, you know, with the other people that were at the, from the newspaper. Does that shot exist, by the way? Yeah, I do have it. Do I don't have, have the negative, but it's in. It ended up being in my yearbook, so I have to somehow, it, you know, it's kind of grainy and funny looking, but I do have it. Yeah. Wow. And it blows my mind every time I think about it, because I wasn't thinking about being a photographer at the time, but I was a big jazz fan, still am. So from there, once I graduated, I um, didn't know what I was gonna do. One of my friend's father worked in New York in human resources at a department store named Alexander's Department Store, if you know about New York back in the day. And at the time, you have to remember, this was 69, you know, the Civil Rights Bill Act had just passed and everybody was scrambling to get black folks to work for them. And, you know, they opened up so many avenues at that point that anybody in my generation, we were really the beneficiaries of the Civil Rights Movement. Real, I mean, the serious right on, right in the, right in the door beneficiaries. Mm. So a lot of, all of us had jobs coming out of school. So... My girlfriend's uncle came down to the campus to interview for a buyer's training program. I took the job because I did. I, first of all, I was in New York. Who wasn't? Who doesn't want to go to New York when you're 22? <laughs> and I didn't have anything else I was going to do, and I didn't really want to go back to Detroit and hang around Detroit. I, you know, I wanted to get out in the world. So, me and my girlfriends, we all we he hired all of us. You know, the one the, the ones that were close. We went to New York, and during that training program. We went to the copyright and advertising department Then we spent a whole day and, um, ah, man, my eyeballs got big. I love that. You know, I didn't care anything about retail. That's a horrible business. <laughs> but uh, when we got to the, the, the advertising and copywriting and the, the, where they photographed all the clothes and the products, I was like, whoa, this looks good. And... Um, when it came time for us to choose where we wanted to be and what department, I said, well, I want to go to the advertising department. Well, that really wasn't a choice because they were just showing us how the clothes and the things that you would be working with would be advertised and the, the whole system of how it worked. So I, got, I was pretty disappointed and, you know, I kind of struggled there for about a month or two. And then I, I decided I didn't want to be in retail. It's just not my thing. And I found a job at Harlem Hospital. And that didn't last long either. I was just really trying to find my way. You know, what am I gonna do? This is this life is not working right now. So at that point I said, well, you know what? I'm moving to LA. Cause a lot of my friends from Fisk had gone to LA. They said, well, what are you gonna do to LA? You're, you've been to New York, now you're going to LA. You're only in your, I'm like, I'm 22, right? I'm not, like I've been all these places in, in, in a year. So uh, my aunt asked me a series of questions and those questions led to being a photographer. She said, well, what do you like to do? Let's find out what you like to do. And then that way we can kind of go from there. I said, well, I like taking pictures. She said, well, be a photographer. I said, oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. You know, I mean, I watched my granddad do it, but I hadn't seen any women, like you said, and I didn't think of it as a career in that sense. She said, yeah, your grandfather, you know, 
your grandfather was a really great photographer. He made a great living. He sent, you know, your dad and I to college and we lived a good life. And I think that would be good. And I see a girl over, she was in Augusta. So she said, I see a girl at Payne College taking pictures of the football games and blah, blah, blah. So I said, oh, okay, that sounds good. Well, that got me all excited. I'm like, okay, now I really know what I'm gonna do. So I met a guy during that time I was there I met a guy that was from LA who had gone to art center at night or did some, he was a, into drafting or something like that. And he was the one who said, if you're gonna go and learn photography, you gotta go to art center. There's just no other where, other place you gotta, you gotta go to art center. They're gonna teach you how to do everything to make some real you know, money at, at photography. You're not gonna just learn how to take pictures. You're gonna really learn the business and the, the whole graphic design. And you know, cause he was in that arena. I said, oh, okay. so. Of course, I wrote away, got the catalog, and I applied and got in. Now, obviously, I had an eye because I got in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of my friends that were in school at that time had taken photography in high school. So they had a little bit of a jump. But I had, you know, it was just, my grandfather must have been hovering over me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it was It was like a, just a series of interesting coincidences, you know. And so what are your memories of being at Art Center? What kind of an experience was it for you? It was fabulous. I had the best time because it was so new. You know, learning, being in the art world was so new to me, you know. Um, you were a visually oriented individual, right? You had been drawn to visual kinds of things as a kid. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was. I looked at magazines and I daydreamed a lot. I would visualize how I wanted my life to be and just... We lived on a really busy street on a boulevard. And up in the, the on the second floor, there was an old box, big box kind of TV that sat next to this radiator. And I, when I come home from school, I would go up to that, that window and sit on that, sit on the TV and put my feet on the radiator to be warm if it was winter. And I would just daydream out that window because a lot of cars would go by. And... So yeah, I was very uh, visually oriented, always. Mm -hmm. I was always attra attracted to visual, I guess I'm a, probably a visual learner and all of that. And it sounds like the daydreaming piece, that's a creative space for you. Yeah, it was, it was. Does it persist today? Yes. Interesting. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, there's a lot I want to get into in some of the details of your career, etc. But again, just to give the archivator context for the listeners, post-graduation from Art Center, just uh, uh, some of the highlights of how you moved through that time. Okay. Well, I take my portfolio to all of the regular places that you are taught to go to, the art, to the, all of the ad agencies and the graphic design companies. And I would just sit in the my little dining room and go through the phone book is how that worked back then. And they had special creative books that you could go through. And by the way, so hearkening back to your experience in New York, you were still keen on finding your way to an ad agency, right? And to doing those, those shoots that, that inspired you so much. Yeah, right. Well, so I would just uh, take my, I was just bold and aggressive and I would just take my portfolio because I had had a portfolio from school and to, um, you know, pay the rent and do all of that. I, uh, I substitute taught. I taught a photography class at night school. I got certified to do that. I worked at the Broadway department store part-time. And then uh, I, I would, every time I would go to Detroit for a vacation or whatever, or a holiday, I would either go 
stop and stop by Chicago because I have relatives there and take my portfolio to those ad agencies. And then I would, whenever I'd go to New York to either visit a friend or whatever, I'd take my portfolio to that those ad agencies. So at that time in the 70s, early 70s, a lot of black ad agencies start opening up because here we go back to women's rights. Okay, women, the women's movement was big. It wasn't a surprise to see women doing unusual careers. And then everything had started opening up. So the black ad agencies and the black magazines, other than Ebony and, es- Ebony and Jet, now you had Essence and a few others. So I would take my work to see those people because I would go to the other ad agencies, but you know, they would look at me like, well, I don't know, you know, this is kind of not what we're used to. And you know, because it was, you know, they did they weren't used to seeing black photographers, especially not a black female. So that would, that didn't disturb me. I just, you know, said, okay, well, I'll keep trying. And you know, I eventually got in the door with some of them. And there was a lot of work through the African-American agencies. So. Eventually, in the magazines, I got a cover for Essence, and uh, Black Enterprise was another big one. So they would send me work for the West Coast, you know, that they needed. They needed a photographer on the West Coast. So it just kind of snowballed. You know, one person would turn me on to another, and, you know, but I was always constantly making sure that I had my portfolio out there and wasn't really able to successfully have a rep like a lot of photographers because they just didn't know what to do with me. I was just a new entity. They didn't know what to do with you because they just didn't know your background or they didn't know what to do with you because of the fact that you were a black woman breaking into this into this field. Uh, it was probably the black woman breaking into the field. It was probably that more than it was um, my work. I mean, I was new at it too, but and I mean the competition is really was really fierce. But I think it maybe a bit was that more more or less. So I said, well, forget it. I'll just take it to my take it myself. A lot of times, the art directors would thought I was the rep mm-hmm. bringing in the portfolio. But I, you know, let them know. But somehow, I was just always in the right place at the right time. <laughs> well, you mix that with a lot of tenacity, as you were saying earlier, and that's probably that's probably a good recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true because if you're tenacious, you will be in the right place at the right time. Right, right. And it sounds like it didn't, uh, as you uh, you just referenced a few minutes ago, that you weren't really bothered by the response. You kind of took it in stride and just persisted. Right. I was not bothered by it too much, and I think that has a lot to do with going to an HBCU and having been in a. Um, Uh, environment where we were always supported. You can do what you want. You know, nobody was really telling us we couldn't do anything. It was always, you know, what, go out there and get it done, you know, figure it out. And even as I grew up in Detroit, as uh, sophisticated of a city as it was at the time, because of the auto industry, it was still very segregated. But in our segregated community, we had examples of all kinds of successful people. You know, my dad was a dentist. My friend's parents were doctors and teachers and lawyers and some were factory workers. But we were all they were all successful at whatever they did, whatever level they came in at. They were successful, had homes, you know, had good families and 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 the whole nine yards. I don't know any of my 
high school friends who uh, didn't feel like they weren't going to have some kind of a decent career or whatever it was they chose. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because it sounds like all these experiences did give you a, a, a very strong sense of self. Absolutely. And a lot of confidence. And that comes across in your work and it comes across just talking to you that that's a part of what's driving this, right? That's a part of what's behind yeah. the success of your career, I think, right? And that is very important. When I was growing up, let me go back to just my own situation. We were all just very supported, you know, I mean, those of us who were lucky enough to be supported, because right. I'm not saying everybody was, because right, there right. wasn't. Of course. I'm, I feel very blessed, and I'm very, very grateful of my background and my my how I came up. But and that wasn't the, that wasn't the case for everybody, and I'm not unaware of that <laughs> at all. But uh, I think um, the younger generation behind me, and even further back didn't maybe get that sense of accomplishment and self that maybe we were all given because we just had to. Mm. You couldn't go any other way, otherwise you wouldn't make mm. it. Mm. Let's talk about your process a little bit. I'm interested in your process as you do your work, uh, how you plan for a given project, how you conceptualize. Uh, what you discover as you you make uh, or you, you develop your photography versus what you set as a kind of an initial goal or vision. I want to get to a conversation about your incredibly beautiful and famous ad for Coke, but I'm fascinated by what your process is, how you think about going about your work. I think, I think most of it is from working with someone else. I'm really kind of, I really enjoy working as a team whenever I would get assignments. The process would be to kind of see where are we going with this, if we're talking about a, a client who has an ad that they want to produce. Once I get all that kind of information together, you know, I would just get in that zone and start shooting. As far as just shooting my own work, I would just have my camera and I would just, if I was out and about, and I just, would, it's just basically kind of how I, how I see things. I would try to capture how my imagination would I would try to, I guess it would be like, I'd try to see how this is going to look on paper before I shot it. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you can answer this next question, but because this is something that interests me a lot. Okay. But what you imagined, what you conceptualized, what you saw, if you will, in your mind's eye versus what was produced in the actual photography and the surprise or the even recognition that came out in that photography, in that photo rather. Were you trying to realize what you saw in your mind's eye and discovered something new? Was it always something very different and a great surprise that came through? What's the relationship between those two moments in your own creative process? Uh, hmm. Sometimes it would shock me that it came out the way it did, and sometimes I would be disappointed. Sometimes it were just great mistakes, but they, the mistakes became exactly. the image, yeah. and of course I wouldn't admit it. <laughs> You know, and I like a lot of abstract stuff. A lot of I don't show. I haven't shown a lot of that, but I do like abstract a lot too. So I'm, you know, I'm always kind of looking at things through like a little. I might say, say, oh, that's an interesting shape. Like I might be sitting on the bed or something, and and I'll see the way the cover and the pillow and the desk kind of blend in together. And if you narrow it down to a little square that would be a photograph, you'd have you know shapes and mm. textures mm. and color. Mm. And so I, that's probably going to be my next, uh, one of my next exhibitions is some abstract stuff. It's interesting that you say that because my own experience of looking at your work um, suggests that 
you are able to kind of focus in in really interesting ways on a kind of quotidian detail of something uh, and then sort of open up from there. I get that feeling anyway, right? Mm. That there are certain kind of details of what you're Mm -hmm. trying to realize and then they have their own kind of reverberations within the image itself. Yeah, right. Well, thank you. Um, I am a detailed person, almost to a fault. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I am detailed. Um, So it probably comes out like that. you know, I also read that you talk about your interest in reflecting in your photographs and in your work, the everyday experience of the black communities right. uh, you, that you've talked about. Again, a, a sort of way of thinking about a detail that tells its own kind of story once it's unpacked. Right. And I guess the Coke ad and the Coke photograph is an example of that, is it not? Right. Well, the Coke ad was an idea of an art director that if you look back in time, he wanted to recreate the idea of kids playing in a fire hydrant in New York when it's hot. And we had to shoot it in the wintertime because it was going to come out in the summer ads for during the uh, 84 Olympics. So I had to let him know. I said, you know, the West Coast doesn't have those kind of fire hydrants like the East Coast does. Right. You know, and as a matter of fact, they're not red, they're yellow. We're going to have to recreate this because, first of all, it's even though it's warm here, it's still winter. So the kids can't be jumping in cold water, you know, uh, or, you know, they can't, we, we're not going to find, first of all, we're not going to find a fire hydrant up against a brick wall in L.A. So I got a set design company to help me recreate it. And the studio that I had at the time was in Hollywood on uh, Kawanga and the parking lot in the back. Uh, was butted up against an old brick wall, which was the building next door. So I said, this is a perfect brick wall. It looks, you know, old and it was old. And and one of the rare brick walls in California, there's not a lot of brick in California. Everything is stucco, if you know what I mean. So that was kind of another serendipitous thing that happened to me. Uh, So we had a sign painter paint the wall and then we had a set decorator uh, build a sidewalk up against that wall. And then we had a guy made an old fiberglass fire hydrant that looked like they, the way they looked in California, you know, the way they looked in New York. And the studio had a, a big industrial sink right at the door, you know, coming out of the studio into the back, into the, into the parking lot. And so we had hot, hot water. We had, so I said, let's run a hose from there underneath the sidewalk and hook it up to the fire hydrant. And we'd have somebody back there turning and getting the temperature right. And the kids could jump in the warm water (laughs) with their Coke cans. And that's kind of how that happened. We were so excited when it came all together because it just, um, it just worked. It does work and it's pure joy. It just- Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it is so sort of profoundly everyday in a way, you know, that it brings you into an experience and attracts you to something that is just a delightful moment in time. Here's a question I'm really curious about. Is there a relationship for you between your photography and jazz? Yeah. I listen to jazz. Jazz just chills me out. Mm -hmm. 
it helps me uh, be creative. Um, it's just part of my, um, it's the music that I gravitate to first. And it's the music that helps me kind of come down off of any stress or um, helps me to be more, you know, when I get into my daydreaming thing or, um, uh, and I like hard jazz, I, you know, I like the, uh, I'm not a smooth jazz person. I want the real stuff. <laughs> Uh, so um, I always have jazz playing. And again, just to because this fascinates me, is there jazz in your work? Meaning, its shape, its improvisational uh, nature, its structure, hmm. its color, its the way it gets under your yeah you know, into your soul the way it does yeah I, I guess it could be I, I mean I, I never I never thought of it like that but um, I'll have to I, that's a I'm gonna blend those two together and do that yeah <laughs> I'm gonna do that's a good assignment for me and I want to have my iPod or my phone on and some earphones and go out and shoot some stuff and see what happens I want to do part two of this conversation then because okay it is a personal fascination to me how different you know aesthetic experiences can blend can influence and they must I mean you're right. listening to the jazz all That's the time right. jazz is so much a part of who you are in your soul it really is I want to switch gears a little bit now, Barbara, and just get a sense from you about the perceptions of the moment um, and what's going on in our world, reflections on some of the challenge we're facing as a society um, amidst this pandemic, certainly, and also in relationship to issues of race, and to understand mm -hmm. some of your thoughts about this moment and what's going yeah. through you in all of this. Yeah, it, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. Um, it, it's kind of like how could this still be going on? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I guess I'm not the only one thinking that, but what is it about the different races that causes so much angst? You know, why haven't we been able to just accept and see each other without judgment? And why so, and as far as just these shootings, what is it that makes the, the people who sh shoot black people, black men in particular, why is it so easy for them to do that? And then you see examples of a similar situation or, and, the, and the perpetrator is white and they literally treat them almost with kid gloves. It's just astounding to me. So obviously it's just the carryover from slavery. And it just seems like it's gonna, is it ever gonna get broken? You know, how, how are we gonna get the different races, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, how are we gonna get them to see each other just as human beings and not pass judgment on them. Because that's, I think the judgment is the, the issue. And I don't even know how to navigate through that. But, you know, if you look a certain way, and I'm not talking about color so much as, I'm talking about color, but in that spectrum of color, you have, you know, people who look a lot of different ways, they dress a lot of different ways, they talk and they act a lot of different, different ways. And is it more of a class thing at some point versus a color thing? You know, because, you know, we were always taught, you know, carry yourself with a certain amount of class, you know, dress impeccably and, you know, show up in a way that's not threatening and all, mm -hmm. all of that. And you would probably be able to get past or get through or get over what it is, your, whatever hurdle what might be in front of you. 
That sh- shouldn't be that way, really. I mean, you know, obviously everybody wants to present the, their best self at that moment, but we're all just people. And how could somebody be so cruel to a person just in general? I really don't have any answers. It's, it's just befuddling. It is befuddling, and it's it's very, very difficult. And does this moment, I mean, for so many, and a lot of our students talk about this too, and I want to get to that, but it conjures up difficult personal experiences of the past. Um, oh, Yeah. And is that happening with you as well? Are you, again, as you navigated this career, as you lived your life? The only one experience that I could think where I felt that my race was, I'm sure there was others, but where I actually really felt that there was a reason that I didn't uh, continue with this client was because of my race was I had an ongoing bread and butter account with a department store. And the reason that I got the job was through a woman that I knew that was an African-American woman who got in the position of being the head creative director. And she told her art directors, you know, use this photographer, use Barbara. She's really good. So I would get work from them constantly. And it was a great time in my career because I was able to buy a house behind that client and things were going really well during that time. And I was making really, really nice living. But it was such a high pace assignments because it was newspaper for talk, you know, it was newspaper ads. So, you know, they came out Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So you were always working. So they would just send the layout. Once they knew who the photographers were that were on the list, they would just send the clothes, send the layout, call you on the phone and say, this is what I'm looking for. Uh, get it back to me by Tuesday. And so they never came to the studio. So I had been working with them for maybe two years and I finally got a new studio in um, Pasadena. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to invite the art directors over for lunch? Do you know, after that, I had that lunch and I had a couple of my assistants, you know, we had a nice little sandwiches and blah, blah, blah. They were, these were all white guys and, girl, and a couple of girls. Almost immediately, they stopped sending me stuff. I mean, within weeks, if not days. Wow. Because they found out I was, I, and I'm sure they, I'm sure they didn't know I was black. That's the only time that I can really say that with some certainty because there was no other reason. My work was good. I was on time. I, you know, I was hyper vigilant about keeping that account. And it, that crushed me. I'm like, yeah, golly, that's, that's really? A, that's really? pretty painful. That's pretty painful. That was painful. Yeah. I had to yeah. really get myself together behind that. You know, and I did, but, ugh. So, Barbara, our students are calling for a certain kind of change at the college, and um, Mm -hmm. it's a very important conversation that's going on now. It's a conversation we've been having for a long time has been intensified in the last several months uh, for greater diversity, for decolonizing our curriculum, for taking on greater social responsibility, paying attention in certain kinds of ways, making sure that we are uh, looking at the kind of uh, systemic racism that exists right. in higher ed, uh, exists in this country, exists in higher ed, and, and frankly, right, exists right, right. at Art Center College of Design. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. And, and we all have a deep and abiding responsibility to look into our souls and into ourselves for this. Right. And right. I'm interested in, as discrimination bias is being called out, I'm interested in, in your point of view on this. I'm interested in your response to what these students are looking for and asking for and how we might help further the conversation with them from your point of view. Well, I, th- I, I think that um, 
it really is incumbent upon the the teachers, the staff, whoever is is a non-colored person. I'm just using that as you know who considered the majority person to really listen and understand and believe and believe that if a student is feeling left out, they're feeling left out. And if they're feeling left out, then it's incumbent upon them to figure out why. Because everybody's going on their own, how they were brought up, what their experience of when they were young. They don't know about certain issues that maybe a person of color goes through on a regular basis. It doesn't come across their mind because they're not facing those issues. Like I've heard this on the TV a lot. It's not really our issue to to change racism. It has to come from the person who's being racist. And they have to just admit that there is a systemic racism that underlies this country and really the whole world, to be honest. It's not just here. We we have it bad, but it's it's, you know, it's in Europe, it's everywhere. So it's just incumbent upon the majority or the perceived majority to decide that they're going to accept this and understand that they got to do the work. They got to do some work. And because because racism is so systemic, it causes uh, not just the white people to be racist against black, but black people can be racist against any other race as well. Because there was a time when I had to Okay, let me back up and, and, and give you a, a backstory. On television, generally, they are going to portray African Americans and Latinos in the news as just being the worst. You know, they're always, if it's a crime and a black person did it, or maybe they were suspected of it, they're going to show them on TV, they're going to show them in the worst light, and their hands behind their back, all of, all of the things that make you feel like... Uh, they're just the worst thing. And if you see that over and over and over again, whether you're black, white, green, or purple, you're going to be afraid of whoever that is that they're saying is the perpetrator. So even black people have had to stop themselves from feeding into the the brainwashing. So, you know, there was a time in my life when I would see a group of black guys, I would have to stop myself and say, now, don't think that they're up to no good. They're just a bunch of black guys like there would be a bunch of white guys. And I had to train myself to say, you know, it's okay. They're just they're just folks. You don't have to pass judgment on them because of what you saw on TV or what somebody else is saying we're all about. Right. So that's what has to happen with white people, how they look at us or anybody else for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Check your bias, right? Right. Check your bias. There you go. I mean, and I'm certain that there's probably even a group of white people that white people look upon as maybe not that's other, you know, oh, I don't want to be bothered with, you know, oh, you know. Right. And they just could be the most charming people, but they just have a certain look. They act a certain way. They don't have a certain sophistication. And, you know, you turn your nose up at them. So in other words, it comes down to caste, like a caste system. Yeah. You know, art and design colleges have a, a particular challenge, of course, with all of this. Um, I appreciated how you referenced certain students who might feel alone or isolated or on the margin. Right. And then that 
also gets manifest in their work, right? So that right. they are working in a certain kind of way. They're working with a certain kind of experience. We are right. serious about each individual student developing a strong voice. They need to be able to have the freedom to create that voice, to be able to talk about their experience, to inform their work with that experience, often not comfortable. Right. And then it's the, the institution's responsibility and the faculty's responsibility as we go through a process of critique, say, which needs to be challenged itself because who knows right. whether that very structure is really going to be accommodating a diverse set of experiences and a diverse set of voices and because it asks certain kinds of questions and it's structured in a certain kind of way mm -hmm. that may be you know that may be way too narrow and frankly too white and maybe too male to really accommodate the full spectrum of, of voices and experiences. Right. And so we have, as part of our responsibility, exactly in terms of what you're saying, to build a, an educational process that allows for that. Right. Where there is both support, but there's an accommodation for different kinds of questions and different kinds of conversations about work that I don't know that we're accommodating very effectively yeah. right now. And, probably, probably not. And that to me is a hugely important piece of this. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's just going to take some faculty training and, and having people do workshops on what all this means in terms of your point of view. If you have one black student in the class, how do you embrace that person if they're feeling left out? And um, it's not going to be easy because if you didn't grow up that way, it's just going to take some kind of work. You got to psychologically. It's just, just like I had to train myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just hard work. It's hard work, and it certainly calls upon all of us to um, uh, to open our hearts. It's necessary. Yeah. I mean, if we open our hearts, if we, you know, which is work in and of itself, challenge the way we right. think, discipline with yeah. ourselves about how bias is operating. Right. Yeah, you, you know, you have to always have that little voice in the back. You have to decide, okay, I am going to be aware. I'm going to be aware of what I'm thinking and what I'm seeing and what I'm saying and what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. It's a conscious effort, not just, and it, you know, you have to physically and mentally and in your prayers or however you decide you're going to change, you have to make it something that you do personally, right. Right. that you're going to change the way you think and feel about certain things. And you're going to watch yourself when you see something and you have this bias, you got to say, oh, oh, wait a minute, let me let me back up and let me look at this from a different way or let me not pass a judgment at all. I was um, reading uh, Tahanisi Coates recently, who was mm -hmm. um, talking very powerfully about why this is such a time of, of hope for him. Uh, and he compares it actually to the civil rights movement. He compares it to 1968, actually. And he says, this is different. This is different because it's not just the black community marching on the streets. Right. This is all kinds of members of the community of all kinds of different backgrounds and different color. And it said coming together and joining forces and saying, you know, we've had enough. We've had enough and we're doing this together versus the isolation of the black community in 68, which is very different. I found that so powerful. And you do. You look at these these protests and you see you know, folks from all backgrounds coming together. It's quite moving. Absolutely. Yeah. And that it is moving. And that, that is really um, very um, hopeful, like you said, because it's got to take more than just one race to clean it up, you know. It's really not our responsibility. We're the ones that are being oppressed. You have to stop oppressing us. Right. <laughs> you know, we can't oppress right. you. And that's in air quotes, you versus us. 
We talk a lot about change at Art Center. It's a huge part of our mission. Uh, create change is actually uh, the name of our, our plan, and, and influence change is a half of our mission statement. Do you think of your work as affecting change? Do you see what you are able to produce and what you're able to realize might have some kind of effect on the world in that kind of way? Because mm. what interests me is how artists think about the change that they create in the world. Well, I have to say that the period of time that I was very active in shooting, you know, most of my commercial work, I felt like I was instrumental in changing a perception based on the kind of uh, ads and the kind of work that we were producing, you know, to show African-Americans in a natural, normal light. You know, we weren't all that much different from previous years where they would show us being the caricatures of what black people were supposed to be, you know, the cotton fields and the mammies and all that. And so in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, into the mid 70s, you know, there was so much more, so many more black images being portrayed in the media. So the fact that I was able to even be part of that movement to show that, you know, we're just like everybody else. We have families and children and we like to have social events and you know we do certain things around the house that are normal to everybody else and so i I felt like i was a part of that movement to show those images and and those ads and then in my own personal decision making whenever i would photograph for a client that wanted that was a we'll say like like a department store well normally it was left up to the photographer what models are shot and so i always made sure that i had a diverse group of models in all of my ads. That was a conscious decision. That wasn't something that the art directors told me to do. I was the one that was making the decision. So if I could make the decision and they would still be happy with the work, then I was gonna make sure that as many people as I could hire got an opportunity to make some money and, and to pursue their careers. And to harken back to my first question to you, it's all that's a, a clear way in which you have been an, a pioneer, a, a true trailblazer. You've You've made such a difference, and you have affected change and influenced change in beautiful and profound ways. Um, I have a final question for you that uh, I'm just compelled to ask. Uh, I have an instinct about this. I don't. I don't know what the answer is going to be, of course. But do you have a strong spiritual life? I do. Mm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, in in um, about the mid '70s, I was introduced to Buddhism, and in California, and. Um, I'm a Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist, and we chant Namyo Horenge Kyo morning mm. and evening. And um, the teachings are, um, they just fit with my life. I don't know, you know, sometimes you just know when you should be part of an organization, and sometimes you're like, no, nah, that's not me. I don't disavow any other religion. I mean, I think all religion and all spirituality, as long as it's going toward good, is good, you know, as long as it's taking you to a good space and a place of offering being a um, beneficial presence on the planet, then it's, it's, it's good. As a matter of fact, throughout all these years of practicing Buddhism and reading different books on, on spirituality, they kind of all say the same thing in a different way. <laughs> you know, the bottom line is, are you happy? Do you have a happy life? Are you a beneficial presence on the planet? Are you, you know, you may not be able to help 10 or 15 or 20 people, but if you're just constantly helping one or two here and there, or if you're, fam- if you're the center of your family and your family is prosperous, or, you know, I kind of look at it in pieces. 
you know, some people are there to help the masses. Some people's mission is just to help a few. Some people's mission is right. is to um, continue to make themselves better because <laughs> everybody's at a different level. And you have to realize that when you're around people and when you're with people, that everybody's not on the same level. Doesn't mean they can't get to a higher level. It doesn't mean that you can't get to a higher level uh, or that you can't sink to a low level. <laughs> right. Because it's, it's an everyday practice. You know, spirituality is part of your everyday practice. You have to be conscious of it. You have to be conscious of your spiritual being. Everybody really kind of knows what's right and what's wrong innately. I think as human beings, I don't know where how that how that is, but I think we all know what's right and what's wrong. And you just have to decide. You have to just deal with it every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you conscious of, of your spiritual life being direct? I can see how, because it affects who you are on this planet and the way you describe it. But do you see it as having a direct connection to the work that you do itself? Is there is that something you're conscious of? Um, hmm. Because we could add it to the assignment. Hmm. We could take jazz, spirituality, and your work and just see how okay. it all comes together, okay. you know? All right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. I like that. Yeah, I, I guess I, yeah, I guess so. I, I think it's definitely helped me on the path of being successful. Yeah. And I'm sure, obviously, it's coming out of me, so it obviously shows up in my work. But is it obvious? Is it obvious? I don't know. Well, to hold a mirror up for a moment and just to give my own individual response as I talk to you and as I engage uh -huh. with your work, uh -huh. there's strength there. You look at it or you talk to you and there's a sense of you know who you are in a certain kind of fundamental way. Oh, thank you. That's what compelled me to ask about this spiritual question, too. It, you know, that, that oh, there was okay. some fundamental grounding. There was some core strength that comes beautifully from out in you those images from what my experience of you and yeah yeah well yeah. then i guess i guess it does show up then if that's what you saw what I because saw. i don't you know i don't i don't think of it that way although there are times when i go back and look at the images that i photographed and you know one or two will be so strong even to me i'm like oh this is just perfect it just yeah the look of the person is right or the the light was just right if it's not a person, if it's an object, or it was just that moment that created that image at that time. And I can see that in a lot of the pieces that I truly love. You know, some things I like better than others, but I can see it. I can see it when I'm when I'm editing my photos. I can see when that one is like, oh, I was right in the zone then. Mm -hmm. And that zone, I guess, is the spirit and the physical coming yeah, together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's quite beautiful. It's been a complete joy, really, talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah. And uh, I strut with great pride to have you as an alum of this college and to be able to now have this connection with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really am honored that you chose me for the podcast. I'm, I'm really honored. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and rate us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.